Fresh episode of Fish Bites. Eli Sussman here. I'm the managing editor of Fish Drives. And this is supposed to be a very slow patch on the content calendar. The Marlins were eliminated from the postseason a week and a half ago. And then we got another week and a half until the full-blown MLB offseason really begins. So we're in a bit of a limbo right now. Uh, Meanwhile, the World Series is on deck. Tua just made his NFL debut. We're about to have a presidential election. There's other stuff going on outside of the Marlins. And thankfully, we've got a little bit of a distraction to pull us back in to this Marlins conversation, even in this current dead period, because the Marlins found a way to thrust themselves into the spotlight on Sunday morning with the announcement that Michael Hill, longtime president of baseball operations, is gone. He's out of that role after seven plus years and after 19 seasons in the Marlins organization. It's not a total surprise, I would say, but certainly a bombshell development that um, puts a new uh, priority on the offseason shopping list to fill that void in the front office. Alex Krutchik from the Fish Stripe staff is joining me on this episode to react to that and to review uh, what happens with, with Mike Hill in charge over the last handful of years. You would hope that a lot of factors went into the decision But ultimately, Alex Hill was a holdover from the Jeffrey Loria Marlins era and across the board. Derek Jeter has been pretty consistent with his desire to bring in his own people to shape the future of the franchise, right? Yeah, Eli, uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. It's one of those things where it's surprising as to when it happened. You know, you saw one of the first uh, front office moves that Jeter and uh, that, that Jeter made with Bruce Sherman when he first got on here in 2017 was fired David Sampson and a couple of other uh, front office uh, kind of advisors, Jeff Conine, Jack McKeon, guys like that. And it's surprising that out of all the people, Mike Hill was the one that stayed. But these last three years, I've been pretty impressed with what Mike Hill has been able to do when he doesn't have Jeff Loria and David Sampson breathing down his neck. So the fact that they waited until now, they make their first playoff appearance in 17 years. Now they decide to let him go. It's it's a rough look. I mean, there's just no like doubt about it. And I, I guess it took people more by surprise. They were outside the Marlins bubble, but like even us in here, because first postseason appearance in 17 years, you know, came with the caveat that shortened season and it took an expanded playoffs for them to get in. Technically, the number six seed, but normally it's just five teams in the National League. And uh, as we're going to get into, you never know exactly how much Mike Hill himself was personally involved in these decisions. But yeah, as I was mentioning to you uh, before we started getting recording, um, Cheater and that ownership group took over three years ago. And at that time, Mike Hill had three years left on his contract that was already in place, signed by Loria. And we don't have a precise figure about exactly how much he was making, but apparently substantial enough that they didn't want all that to go to waste. They still wanted him as part of the decision-making process and have his voice in that room. And I mean, they kept him involved for some of the most important moves in franchise history when they were tearing down that old core. When it started with Stanton coming off one of the best individual seasons in franchise history and Yelich, how much value Yelich had at that time, given the contract that he was on and Ozuna coming off a career year and Real Muto coming off a career year when he was traded. I mean, those were, hugely critical moves that Hill was involved in. And Hill was the one front and center that was explaining all the moves publicly. He was the one defending these moves. 
he was the one doing the like lion's share of the actual public appearances, like trying to justify it. And so I, I don't think you can blame the public from, for feeling that he was like right in the middle of all this. And therefore, once this thing has now turned the corner to some extent and they were able to make the postseason, that he was a guy you thought would get like a lot of credit and be really involved with that. And it's uh, apparently not. I mean, this the statement that came out on Sunday about the decision was pretty brief. Jeter held like this really impromptu press conference. And uh, I, I, I guess he was courteous overall about Mike Hill, but didn't didn't exactly go over the top to make this seem like a, a I, I think it was clear reading between the lines that this is more so, you know, the organization's decision. Like if we were going to say, I, what they were hoping is that we would treat this as like a mutual parting of ways. But I mean, at least my read on it is that Mike Hill would have been fine sticking around with the same place he's been the last two decades. And that it was more of the team that was kind of turning the page on him. Yeah. Based on the things that I was hearing, uh, there was mutual interest between them, but it seems like they just couldn't agree on a price tag, which doesn't surprise me considering that Don Mattingly also had to take a pay cut when he got extended last year. Yeah, that's something I brought up. I think with those, the numbers are a little bit more particular where he was earning like two and a half million dollars a year under his previous contract. And they lowered that to two, a half a million dollar pay cut for a guy to retain his job, which is just highly unusual. Uh, but uh, I mean, with him at the time of that deal, that they were coming off 105 losses. They didn't have really any momentum, but uh, they erred on the side of continuity. And I mean, that's the one word that you really associate with a lot of these successful franchises um, that they've continuity at the most important positions in their organization. And of course, when new ownership came in, they turned the page um, on most of the former employees at one time, but they had Mike Hill hanging along. And when he was hanging along, after that initial transition, you were hopeful that was about more than just the contract that they actually valued him and actually saw him as a fit with uh, their whole methodology and their process and their collaborative environment. And uh, so now it leaves like this pre pretty big void that uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But I wanted to spend most of this episode now is looking at the best and the worst of the Mike Hill era. And there is going to be a lot more bad than good because, of course, prior to this past season, the Marlins with Mike Hill as the president of baseball operations, we had seven seasons of that. He took over at the end of 2013. He took over uh, replacing Larry Beinfest for that top role in the front office. And they, of course, were under 500 for every year of that until this 60-game uh, season where they were able to sneak over that and make it into the postseason. But for the most part, it was a frustrating era, one where they continued to hit this wall, uh, specifically one where they never seemed to have quite enough starting pitching and uh, it squandered. Uh, a lot of the great star caliber position players they had available on an everyday basis. And of course they had a tragedy right in the middle of that tenure that was frankly would have been impossible for almost any other small market franchise to overcome. And so, I mean, the importance of that can't be overstated, but we're going to focus on the stuff that he can control that, well, to some extent that Mike Hill can control. And as we're going to keep reiterating, we don't know exactly how much control Mike had in this situation because Loria um, one of the reasons why his tenure was considered so uh, frustrating and disappointing is that he was someone that meddled in these baseball operations decisions. He's the one that had certain preferences that he fancied himself an expert in this area. And um, of course, he ultimately had control over the spending and his spending habits were very inconsistent. And I'd say for the most part, 
tend to be a little air on the side of greediness and not exactly investing, especially in certain areas where you're supposed to invest in to build a sustainable organization. So we're not going to pin all this stuff on Mike Hill for better or worse, but uh, we did want to go through, you know, the key moves that the front office made and how they shaped the teams that we've been watching over the last uh, seven seasons. Uh, as, as we've talked about before recording, uh, I'd say the bad outweighs the good by quite a lot. I handle the bad, you're handling the good, and uh, we're going to go alternating with one good move, then two bad moves, one good move, two bad moves, and we'll have some crosstalk in between if, if, in case we've missed anything too obvious in there. But uh, we're going to start on, on a bright note, and one of the positive moves that Mike Hill made during his tenure uh, – Go with anyone you want that really sticks out as something that they did uh, on the transaction side that made the team better than it would have been if they had just stood pat. I'm going to go all the way back to 2015 for this. Uh, the acquisition of D Gordon, it was one of the only positive trades, in my opinion, that Hill made while still working under the Loria and Sampson regime. Uh, he Gordon comes to Miami, immediately contributes in in such a way that Miami hadn't seen in a long time. He was an everyday leadoff hitter, consistent pretty much every night. He was an anchor at second base. Uh, his first season in Miami, he gets selected to the All-Star game, wins the gold glove, the silver slugger. Uh, his batting average is on base percentage, slugging percentage, and OPS with Miami were all higher than any other team that he was with his entire career. The three years that he was in Miami, it, it was the prime of his career. Not to mention that also during the three years he was here, the Marlins as a team were in the top 10 in batting average all three of those years. And in two of those three years, they were in the top five. Also, just as a side note, that same trade is what brought Miguel Rojas to the Marlins from the Dodgers. I mean, nobody was paying attention to Mickey Rowe when he was in that trade. Uh, he had that one like brief rookie call up with the Dodgers before that. And uh, yeah, D was, he had plenty of major league time with the Dodgers, but he just was not that same kind of hitter that he would be. He totally broke out. Like as soon as that trade happens and yeah, I mean, not just like a great player, but like one of the most marketable, marketable players on the team. And I mean, there's a brief stretch in there where he was like one of the more dynamic players in the whole league just for who he was personally. Gordon strokes it right center field. That's in the gap. That's going to the wall. And it will score two. Dietrich scores. Ichiro scores. Gordon headed for third. On his way home. Relay. Got it. D. Gordon. The Marlins could probably bring him back on like a minor league deal if they wanted to because of how much things have changed ever since he left. Uh, but we're going to have to transition to the negative side one of the many, many moves that I wanted to get into here. And yeah, these are in no particular order, but I wanted to go with one that was towards the very, very beginning of him taking over as president of baseball ops. He took over at the end of the 2013 season. And the first big free agent deal that he gave out was to Jared Saltillo Three years, like about $21 million to be the franchise catcher. Uh, Salty was coming off a pretty big year with the Red Sox as the catcher on the World Series championship team. So it was a pretty classic example of a guy getting a huge boost from from being in the playoffs and, have, and being right in the middle of a team that went deep into the playoffs. And he had, to be fair, he had a little bit of a track record before that too, the couple of years prior to that, where he was like a solidly 
average hitter in those years, like good power, but he just didn't get on base at all. And the question with him was his defense, you know, how he handled his pitching staff. He had some pretty inconsistent like performance when it came to throwing out runners and all of that just fell right off a cliff. Like as soon as he came to the Marlins, he was supposed to be the primary catcher, of course, from 2014 on supposed to be a three-year deal. And he barely made it into the beginning of that second year before he was, uh, fortunately, they got very fortunate that they had JT Real Muto in the system, who was by the end of 2015, he was kind of ready to be catching every single day. But uh, that totally set them back in 2014 and 2015. And it's hard to like perfectly quantify. But I mean, you got to think that the way that he was handling that pitching staff or what he didn't do to handle that pitching staff in those couple of years had a lot to do with why some of the young pitchers that they had at that time didn't really take off with the exception of course of Jose Fernandez. And so that was a little bit of a tough luck is that Jose had his Tommy John surgery pretty early into that first year that Salty was there. So outside of him, there just were not a lot of quality arms for Salty Lamaki to work with, but I mean, he struck out at such a ridiculous clip, uh, even by those standards and strikeout rates across the league have gone up a lot since then. But like at that time, it really stood out how much he was totally useless in all these high leverage situations, didn't get on base and his throwing issues like reached a whole nother level where he was throwing out 20% of attempted base dealers, sometimes less than that when the league averages closer to 30. And uh, yeah, he, He's never really been the same player ever since with his subsequent teams. And at this moment, I think his career is pretty much over, but uh, all that money was guaranteed to him. So, I mean, good for him. It was a good story at the time because he was from, I think, West Palm Beach. He was sort of, you know, a South Florida native. They kind of had that angle going on, but uh, he was a, a total flop. And that was a year where they were trying to rebound from 100 losses in 2013 and uh, they didn't rebound exactly the way they thought. Or, um, I mean, they had some nice moments that first year totally in spite of him. Like, he really held them back. And that was a position that, of course, they just didn't really fix until they had Real Muto come up from the farm system. And I'm touching on a second one before flipping back to you because we're trying to get through all the worst moves we can uh, in a single episode that uh, a year after that, in November 2014, uh, this was... Uh, one that they stayed inside the organization, not getting a new player, but extending one of their own. That was when they announced the 13 year, $325 million Giancarlo Stanton extension. And Stanton was coming off a really great 2014 season. He was a guy that was in the MVP conversation back then for a good chunk of the year before missing uh, most of September with his injury. And he was only entering his age 25 season and he was established as one of the best hitters in the league, one of the most dynamic players in the league and someone that was getting pretty expensive because of like the skill set that he had and how much power he was already hitting for at such a young age. The Marlins were trying to buck that trend, that people were frustrated that they were trading away all their best players. So they went on the total, uh, they went to the total opposite end of the spectrum and made sure not just to sign him long-term, but to like shatter every record in the book. I mean, this was, far and away the largest contract in North American sports history at the time that it happened. It wasn't even close. It just blew the Alex Rodriguez contracts out of the water. And I think even to this point, it's only been topped by Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. But the thing with Stanton is he had those durability concerns at the time. And I think pretty immediately in 2015, he got off to a great start before suffering another major lower body injury that cost him a bunch of games. And at, they gave him 
uh, it was extremely backloaded as you would expect at the time, because for a team that was challenged about its revenue, that wasn't really thinking too far ahead. They, uh, they were going to underpay him those first few years before it really spiked into the $25 million, $30 million average salary range. And uh, they got a lucky break that they were able to unload the contract at all. I mean, it took him having one of the best years in franchise history in 2017, actually winning that MVP award for them to convince the Yankees to take him. But I mean, they kind of buried themselves in a corner with that. They were fighting too far back to like, try to like get away from that reputation they had as not being player friendly, uh, giving up on their most popular players. And they went too far to this extreme. Like they gave him a contract that was never going to be good value that if not for that miraculous season, they weren't going to be able to move. And they gave him a full no trade clause, a guy that was 25 years old and one that although was a great player, wasn't necessarily at that top of the list. He nobody was going to mistake him for trout or another totally indispensable part of the team. And they gave him so much control over his situation. And ultimately that was what set up the trade after 2017 because of how much money was still left over that final 10 years. And because of the no trade clause, they kind of, they didn't allow Mike Hill now under new ownership in 2017. He didn't have, there was no way out of this to make, there's no way to make that exit anything but ugly. And they ended up getting not very much in return. They're going to kick in a little bit of that money to the Yankees on the back end. And it was such an ugly ending to a guy that was like one of the most beloved and, and most productive players in franchise history. And the reason why it ended so ugly was set up by this extension that was signed about six years ago. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I would love to see what the financial projections were for the future that, that Lori and Samson were looking at because I was in high school at the time and I was very excited that Stanton, in theory, was tied down to the Marlins for a very long time. But even then, I, the, the logical side of me was like, where are the Marlins going to pull this $300 million out of? And, and also be able to sign other players to surround him. Yeah, I'm going to dig up the clip and put it in this pod episode when it goes out, that he's very careful with his words in the press conference. You know, it's a 13-year deal. It's for all intents and purposes a lifetime contract, or it's supposed to be. But he's very careful in the press conference not to uh, – say he's a Marlin for life, not to say that he'll be here for 13 years. He'll, he says, uh, I, I'm excited to be here for the foreseeable future. The, this is for the city of Miami. This is for newfound confidence and trust. Uh, and starting with me, my teammates, front office here, we're all in agreement. We need uh, a winning environment, a winning city. And um, we're, we're, this is one building block towards a, a better future. And um, uh, a new way of life down here in Miami. And I'm glad to be here um, for my foreseeable future. I think even he was a little suspicious of the way that was going to work out. And uh, I, of course he had, the, I, I should mention, he had that opt out in the contract too. You know, if he was going to be after that 2020 season right now, actually he had that opportunity to opt out if he stayed healthy, if the free agent market was strong and for a million different reasons, of course, of course, he's he's not going to use that opt out, and he's going to stay with the the Yankees another another seven seven years. Yeah, so there's still no light at the end of that contract, and thankfully, most most of it is now the Yankees' problem now. But uh, cheer us up a little bit, give us another positive move from the Michael Hill tenure. So, speaking of that 
Uh, infamous outfield, uh, pretty much one of the first big trades of the Jeter era. Winter of 2017, Marcelo Zuna gets traded. And it's weird because I feel like Ozuna was the least sought out player from that outfield that famously had Christian Yelich and Giancarlo Stanton. But looking back, it, it yielded the best results. Centerpiece, Sandy Alcantara. He was never seen as an ace coming in from that trade, but that's pretty much what he's been. He's rarely had a bad start and the Marlins get a lot of innings out of him. And that's rare for a Don Mattingly team to have a pitcher who consistently will get you through six or seven innings each night. We've seen this year how quickly all these players get yanked out of the game. Uh, And then I I also saw something interesting. His fielding independent pitching, his FIP, has gone down every year since he's been with Miami. He started at uh, 4.75 in a limited sample size in 2017, then down at 4.55, and then uh, 3.71 this year. It's been three years since they've acquired him. He's already made an all-star appearance, an opening day start, and the ace on this year's playoff rotation. First playoff game, he gives up just one run over six and two-thirds inning, and he's also not a free agent until 2025. Also, shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we also got uh, uh, Magnoris Sierra out of that trade, which for a, a couple of years looked like it was just kind of an afterthought. But we've seen this year when he was healthy, he was a huge part of that Marlins offense and defense too, really. He's, he, he used to be a strikeout machine. He used to have no power and he still won't hit any home runs for you, but he'll, he'll get a ball into the gap now. And don't sleep on Zach Gallen as part of that trade. Zach Gallen was even like, he was totally buried under the Cardinals depth chart at the time. And I think frankly, even the Marlins didn't think that much of him until like 2019 and then he just uh, destroys all of AAA for half a season. He forces his way up. He immediately performs, and they're able to flip him for who they hope is now, what, their shortstop of the future in Jazz Chisholm, or at least their uh, second baseman of the present, if nothing else. And, and Daniel Castano was like he was, the, he was like the definition of a throw-in piece, Castano. He was someone that I think even back then, fastball topping out at like 88, 89 miles per hour. Uh, someone that had decent results, like in the lower levels of the minor leagues, but there was just no expectation of him being a major league pitcher. And yet his numbers this year in the majors were almost as good as Sandy's were. Nobody thinks he's going to sustain that necessarily. I mean, he doesn't strike anybody out, um, relies a lot on his defense, but I mean, for this particular season, if nothing else, the fact they were able to get like good two months out of him at a time when their like rotation was totally decimated by of course COVID related issues and Castano was able to like step in there and do stuff he's able to skip triple a on his way up there and be like a contributing piece I mean that's the one that totally caught me off guard even as someone that's really fixated on what's going on in the minor leagues like Castano he was the one that I had totally written off as like a major league contributor and yet he came from that same trade on a somewhat related note, we need to look at, of course, one of those other outfield trades, the one that has not worked out nearly as well for the Marlins, or I should say it has worked out a whole lot better for the other team that he wants to. That's going to be Christian Yelich, where just like Ozuna, they got four players back in return. They got good quantity in the deal. And frankly, at the time, I got to admit that I was 
fairly pleased with it because it seemed not only quantity, but a lot of quality there, or, or at least some really high upside. Uh, of course, Brinson had that um, really perfect storyline heading into the trade and that he was someone that grew up a Marlins fan. It's so hard to find that, at least for the moment, among active major league players, the ones that are young enough and actually um, willing to stick with the team. He was someone that was at the perfect age to experience the 2003 title, idolized Juan Pierre, took Juan Pierre's number when he got called up to the Marlins. And uh, he just, it was him, it was Monte Harrison, it was Isan Diaz, it was Jordan Yamamoto. At this point, we've seen all four of them in the major leagues. And I guess Brinson is the one that this past season, he was the one that he finally saw some glimpses of what he's capable of, of, of the power he's able to hit for. Uh, I think I thought his defense was better than ever this year. But I mean, the bottom line is you look at his career to date and he's hitting under 200. He strikes out 30% of the time. He doesn't steal bases. You have Monte who steals all the bases and plays as a great defense and, but doesn't do anything else at the plate at this moment. Um, his, uh, it's, it's a big long shot for him to develop into like an everyday caliber player, just because he's not getting on base for the time being. Isan Diaz won the minor league player of the year, and it has not translated at all since he got called up in 2019. Uh, and Jordan Yamamoto was a really feel good rookie in 2019 at the very start of his career, but he faded as the year went on. And he, uh, I mean, he had like a forgettable summer if there ever was one, like just, he was in the middle of the 29 to nine game that they lost the Braves and you don't want to overreact too much to a tiny sample size, but I just wonder what this summer will do to his confidence and push it back of, of that group. You don't know. Um, you can't really fully trust any one of those guys to be a huge part of the future. Maybe they have little roles on the periphery of the contending roster, but on the other hand, you have Yelich who is on the short list of the best players in baseball now. And he was, he was, he was underrated at the time of the trade. I think people in Miami understood um, that he had great potential. He was, he was already a guy that had such a beautiful swing and already had a really good track record in the majors, even if he was flying underneath the, the national radar. And, uh, but because of the very friendly contract that he was on, I don't know if you're going to bring that up, but one of the most important moves of Michael's tenure was actually signing him to that first extension. They got him for seven years, $50 million with a couple of team options on the end. And that's what made him such a valuable trade chip in the first place. And I don't think the Brewers expected this of him for him to be the MVP in 2018. He was on an MVP trajectory in 2019 until he had that freaky injury and coincidentally playing against the Marlins. And uh, in 2020, I mean, he was one of the um, more confusing players in the league. Like he, anyway, you slice it, he was a big disappointment for the Brewers in 2020. They barely made the playoffs. And, um, it's a really uncertain future for him at this moment because now the Brewers have since given him a lifetime deal and you don't know where that's going. But, uh, but either way, I mean, he's, he'd be the face of the Marlins franchise right now unequivocally and he's a great ambassador for the game and he's not here anymore. And so the Marlins are we're hopeful that the quality of that prospect package was going to replace him. But I mean, it's immediately apparent that that's not going to happen. You know, they're just going to have to try to make most of what happened in that deal uh, and once again, I'm going to clump this together with another of the forgettable, regrettable moves of the Michael Hill tenure. That would be January of 2016. This was under old ownership. Uh, five years, $80 million for Wei Yin Chen. Oh, boy. So that's, that's the last big deal that I think the team has done with a Scott Boris uh, free agent player. 
And even in his press conference, Chen was very uh, thankful for Scott Boris for getting him that deal. I think he knew at the time that it was more security than you'd ever expect for a guy that was at his very best a mid-rotation starter. When we had this opportunity to to talk about weigh-in and, and when Jeffrey gave, really he gave the right to Mike to go through what do we need to do to make the team better? And, and Mike, I'm going to ask him to talk about his thought process. But the fact is that every move we make is is thanks in whole part to a desire by the owner, Jeffrey Laurie, to make sure that we do something that can help improve the team. Um, I wouldn't say there were red flags about him coming into uh, like joining the Marlins. He had been with the Orioles the previous four years. He'd been overall, you know, more or less an average major league starter, sometimes a little bit better than that. But the swing and miss ability wasn't really there. Um, there were some minor injuries along the way in Baltimore. And as soon as he got to the Marlins, though, I mean, those injuries uh, the, got a lot more severe. He, I don't think he ever had a surgery on that like troublesome left elbow of his, but he missed significant time in 2016 and in 2017. And I mean, by the end of his tenure, there was, uh, there was an amusing part of the 2018 season when the Marlins weren't really first year of the rebuild, weren't really playing for anything for whatever reason, Chen was amazingly good when he started at Marlins park. And yet he was unplayable when he was starting on the road, but for that season overall, he was mediocre in 2019. They finally took the L on him and just stuck him in the bullpen in a mop-up role. And that went worse than anybody could have imagined. I mean, he took so much heat during the 2019 season, even in games that were already out of hand, uh, because he just could not adjust to that role at all, not knowing when he was going to pitch or how long he was going to pitch. He had an ERA uh, over six in that season, pitching out of the pen. And they finally did, um, they sucked it up. And here in 2020, uh, before the 2020 season even got started, they released him because they needed the roster spot. They wanted to hand it over to someone that was younger, that had more team control, that had more upside. And uh, they they bit the bullet on that under new ownership. But the fact that it was able to happen under old ownership was, was a mess. It was a mess, not only because he struggled, but because of his missed time. And of course that snowballs when you consider the fact that Jose Fernandez wasn't there for most of that, um, that it put so much responsibility on Chen and he wasn't able to handle it. And they use that as an excuse to, um, to suggest that they like, to use that as an excuse not to continue spending on the major league product. They didn't invest to continue adding rotation depth. And ultimately you had this team that wasn't good enough to get over the hump that never had a winning record, even with Chen on their payroll. And that was, <sighs> I mean, you want to see in the future, the Marlins have now done this rebuild to try to avoid these kind of situations, right? They've stacked their farm system with so much young pitching, and we've seen a lot of that breakthrough to the majors, and we still have several waves of that that have yet to come up and you feel very good about. So they're hopeful about building their entire rotation from within, uncontrollable talent, but eventually they're going to have to bring in a veteran to really eat those innings and to push them over the top. And I guess Chen is a cautionary tale. And um, ultimately, I don't think it, he was a bad pitcher or necessarily a, a foolish choice. But uh, I think definitely it's a, it, it dissuades you from ever giving out like a five-year deal to a pitcher that's already in his 30s. That if you're going to make that kind of investment, you got to keep it short term. And you got to keep it with guys that can miss some more bats. Because, yeah, because... I don't think there's there's really very few players in recent Marlins history that have been as despised as Chen was through no fault of himself personally, just 
didn't have the performance to back up that payday that he got. Well, you had the one year where he was a Cy Young pitcher at Marlins Park and only Marlins Park. Yeah, the home Chen phenomenon back then. So that's going to baffle baseball historians fifty years from now. They're going to they're going to take a lot of time on that one. We'll try try to flip this around for us. Uh, give us a third move that you thought went pretty well under this old front office headed by oh. Michael Hill. So I'm going to give you two. Uh, the first move is a pretty easy one. I almost didn't want to include it because of just how easy it is. Uh, Sixto Sanchez for JT Real Muto. Uh, or Sixto Sanchez and Jorge Alfaro in exchange for JT Real Muto. Not only because Sixto Sanchez, as of right now, was projected to be almost as good and the same type of player as Pedro Martinez, but also you, you got Jorge Alfaro out of it. Now, Sixto Sanchez already speaks for himself. I don't think I need to elaborate any more on that. He he performed great this year. He had a couple of games where he looked like a rookie, but then he had a couple of games where if you told me he was already a five-year veteran, I'd believe you. I, I think that a full spring training next year, hopefully we'll get a full spring training, uh, will help him out a lot. And I think in another year of uh, 162 games, so about 30 starts, will hopefully iron out any uh, – any issues that he has, maybe develop one more pitch. Because right now I feel like he really only has two or maybe three that he can really, really rely on. But I think that he's going to be great, just like everyone else does. Jorge Alfaro, I know that Mattingly kind of shied away from him during the playoffs, which was very concerning to me. But I think that Alfaro will still be good. He had a 262 batting average in uh, 2019, got you – 18 home runs, had a 425 slug percent, which isn't that bad. But I think that he is a better version of what Jared Saltalamacchia was supposed to be, which is, you know, he's not exactly going to get you a bunch of singles and doubles, but he'll hit a home run for you once in a while. And I think that uh, as long as he can become a little bit more consistent, because he had those moments this year where he came off the COVID IL and was just terrible for about a week. And then he went on a run where he was like, I'll have to look up the exact stat, but I think he was like eight for 10 in three or four games. So he has it in him. And then of course, not to mention the fact that JT Real Muto may not even sign back with the Phillies. So assuming that he goes somewhere else, I've heard the Mets are a big player on him with Steve Cohen getting in there with all of his money. But imagine JT Real getting only two years of JT Real Muto and you gave up Sixto Sanchez and Jorge Alfaro for that. And then also what I think will be interesting is it's very, very unlikely, but I was talking to a couple of people around baseball, and they acknowledge that both sides still like each other. I wouldn't say there's interest in the sense that they're negotiating with each other, but they don't. there's no bad blood between them in the same way that, like, you know, I think there's still a little bit of saltiness from, say, Giancarlo Stanton or Christian Yelich, but JT Rulamito has no issues with the new Marlins regime. And I don't think they'll have enough money to get him this winter, but I think it'll still be an interesting storyline. And then my second good move, I'm actually going to go a little bit out of the box on this one. Uh, Every single move made during the first week of August this year, during the Marlins coronavirus outbreak, Mm -hmm. 
18 play. We all know the story. 18 players go on the IL at once, including eight of their 12 relief pitchers. Most of the bats were replaced by guys that were already in the 60 player pool, like Monte Harrison, Lewis Brinson, but the relief pitchers came out of nowhere. The Marlins acquired uh, 11 total players from other teams during the eight days that Miami was quarantined. Some of those guys, uh, it was uh, Brett Eibner. He was throwing around in the independent leagues. He came from the Sugarland Skeeters. That's, that's who he was signed from. He hadn't pitched in the major league since 2017, 2018. And he came right out of Sugarland. Uh, if I had to name one specific player, um, I really liked James Hoyt. Most of us, I feel, have never heard of him before this. He came over from, from uh, Cleveland. And he wound up being the best reliever on this team. I, I don't know, nothing against Brandon Kinsler because he was good too, but I don't know why Hoyt was never uh, considered as a, as a closing pitcher this year. Uh, he finished with a 1.23 ERA and ended the season on, on a 19-game scoreless streak. And the fact that the Marlins came out and went, what was it, 20 scoreless innings coming out of quarantine against the Baltimore Orioles, Eli? I remember because it was, yeah, it was at least those first two full games and into the third one. Yeah. It was incredible uh, using pitchers that for the most part we hadn't heard of because of the situation. It was, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, we have a recent article on James Hoyt just outlining how freaky his season was. He was, it's one of the most unique pitchers you can find. I mean, he's already 34 years old at, at, at the end of the season and yet he'd barely had any major league experience. He had been with the Astros, in fact, the year that they won the World Series title, but he got overshadowed on that team. He got um, he had a couple unlucky injuries, not even with not even serious arm injuries, but just unlucky ones. And uh, he got buried in the minor leagues, you know, in Cleveland, as you said, where they're a very deep pitching organization. And yeah, the Marlins got him for uh, cash considerations, which is when it's it's such a small amount of money that they don't even specify. And he immediately jumped in. He, he is such a unique player in that he has he relied more on his slider than like any other pitcher on record in Marlins history he threw that pitch two-thirds of the time because one I mean he didn't have a very good fastball in the first place but no matter if he was facing a lefty or a righty and no matter what the situation was there was a lot of situations where he came in with inherited runners on base and yet he was able to pile up swings and misses keep the ball in the park and now He's a guy that could be part of their long-term plans. He's under team control for a bunch of years as they want to retain him at the league minimum. So yeah, that one in particular sticks out, but just in general, the fact that they were able to cobble together all those major league caliber arms and some of them, no doubt, you know, lucked out. Some of them just happened to be pitching at their best at the perfect time. But some of that is a lot of the work you put into like being able to acquire them in the first place and knowing which guys are ready to step in immediately and knowing what situations to use them in. Because one of the funnier moments of the year was when Don Mattingly admitted that uh, he'd never met some of the players that he was using before. Like they arrived at the ballpark and he didn't know them, but he had to be ready to use them in games. So, I mean, you want to give credit to Mattingly. He's going to win national manager, national league manager of the year this year. But I mean, realistically he wasn't the one like picking out those situations to use the guys and he didn't know those guys the ones that actually knew those guys were whether it's michael hill or whether it was people working directly underneath him in the front office uh, they put in all that work in a very limited amount of time to like figure out the best fits that will uh we'll have to specify a couple other 
of the forgettable moments from this tenure as the head of baseball ops before I get out of here. A couple trades in particular that Marlins fans know very well. This was from this was from the end of the Jeffrey Loria era when the team still felt they had a chance to like contend. They still uh, they were a couple pitchers away from really putting it together. In the summer of 2016, they head into the 2016 deadline well above the 500 mark. I believe they were holding one of the wild card positions at the time. And I think this was actually a full month before the trade deadline where they they really set the mark on being a buyer at the deadline before anybody else. Fernando Rodney, veteran right-handed reliever, got off to a great start to his season with the Padres, but the Padres weren't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, Rodney was about to be named a National League All-Star but he had a long track record of being very inconsistent, of struggling with his control. And the team, um, I mean, there's no other explanation that like they just got fooled by the really surface level stats. Rodney had an ERA in, he'd only allowed one run the entire year to that point through like the first three months of the season. And they thought he, for some reason, he was going to be able to keep that up the second half of the year. They went into the farm system and traded away a uh, very recent draft pick that people didn't know much about, but was having great results in the minor leagues. And that young player they traded away turned into Chris Paddock, who went to the Padres. They got a half year of Rodney. Rodney even had like an extra year of club control beyond that. But he was so bad down the stretch of 2016, and not just in terms of having a six ERA, not in terms of just struggling to throw strikes, but the situations that he was used in, he was immediately plugged into, I believe the closers role. And then even down the stretch, they still use him as like a setup man. He was pitching the most important innings for the team and he was screwing almost all of them up. It was some of the most disheartening losses that they've had um, of this entire tenure of Michael Hill running baseball ops was when Rodney was given a two run lead or three run lead in a game that the Marlins had to win and he couldn't throw strikes. And he gave up the most important hits of those games, and he cost them those games. And they put a lot of faith in him, even though they had a pretty decent bullpen at that time. They they pushed those guys further down the hierarchy in order to give the veteran his opportunity, and he failed them. He failed them, and they traded away Paddock in that situation. Paddock blew out his elbow very shortly after that, but uh, given a year and a half to recover from that, he was one of the most dominant pitchers in the minor leagues in 2018. And so dominant that the Padres rushed him up to the major leagues for opening day 2019. I think he skipped AAA and uh, he had mixed results this past season in 2020, but overall his two seasons in the major leagues have seen a guy that is great at throwing strikes has one of the nastiest changeups that we've ever seen. And he's only, he's heading into his age 25 season. He's going to be in the majors for a long time. He's going to be a quality starting pitcher for the long time. Uh, I don't know how you want to compare him exactly to Sixto or to Sandy or to Pablo, but if he was on the Marlins right now, he'd definitely be in their rotation. He'd be in consideration for the top of their rotation. And they gave him away in order to make a patchwork upgrade to a bullpen and uh, to be blinded by factors that don't really matter when it comes to putting the finishing touches on what they hoped would be a postseason team back in 2016. And that team, and they didn't make it. They fell under 500. And so much of that was single-handedly because of how they use Rodney and putting way too much trust in him. And a related trade just six months later uh, in January of 2017, at the time where 
uh, franchise had could have gone in a couple different directions. This was before they formally announced that the team was up for sale. They had a lot of big contracts on the books for 2017, and they decided, uh, I mean, to the credit of, I, I, maybe not to their credit, but you can admire that they still wanted to take one last shot at putting a postseason contender on the field because of the great core position players they had in place, but they weren't willing to dip into free agency to improve this starting rotation. So they looked to the trade market. They weren't, they didn't have the kind of high caliber prospects, you know, no doubt like superstar prospects in order to trade for an actual top of the rotation arm. And they settled for Dan Straley from the Cincinnati Reds, trading away Luis Castillo, Austin Bryce, a minor league outfielder named Zeke White in a three-player package to get Dan Straley. And Straley was, he was all right for the Marlins. He was, uh, I mean, I guess you'd put him in the same bucket as Chen, except for being a little bit more durable and uh, for what it's worth, but he did not move the needle much at all with this rotation. And Luis Castillo was up in the majors only a few months later. They like horribly underestimated how close Castillo was to being major league ready. I think David Sampson, um, back in the day, he was the one that was still running, had a major role in the team at the time of this deal. And he admitted that a lot of people within the Marlins didn't believe that Castillo was necessarily a starting pitcher in the major leagues. And they were so wrong about that. Castillo has been a pretty effective starting pitcher for what the last three and a half years for the Reds. And especially in 2020, I mean, you look at his peripheral stats, his FIP was in the mid twos this past season, one of the best marks of any qualified starter in the major leagues pitches in a hitter friendly ballpark doesn't allow home runs. And just like Chris Paddock, he has one of the single nastiest changeups of anybody in the major leagues. And he complements that with a fastball that sits in the high nineties. He has at the very least, he's a guy that you're going to trust to be a number two starter for the foreseeable future. A guy that is just entering the prime of his career right now. And the Marlins would love to have him. Right now, they traded from a, a farm system that was already one of the thinnest in all Major League Baseball in order to go all in, and it it backfired. It backfired so badly, and these are the trades that I guess they're cautionary tales for the future, right? Because this team heading into 2021 is um, – they have so much – they're in a better position than the team was a few years ago because of all the young talent they still have in the pipeline, all these all this depth that they have, guys with high ceilings that um, – have very realistic chance of becoming homegrown stars for them. But eventually there's going to come a point where you're needed, you'll need to look outside the organization for veteran reinforcements and guys like Starling Marte, when you have an opening in center field, uh, I guess the next step for this organization could be trying to acquire some late inning relief help um, to really lock down those innings moving forward. Eventually you're going to need to continue trading for other veterans and the trades you're going to have to make, uh, you just need to be careful with these trades because I think in the moment, if you're laser focused on the major league team, um, then you can sort of excuse them. But the way these trades caught up to the Marlins, uh, I mean, essentially these two trades, Paddock for Rodney, Luis Castillo for Dan Straley, those two trades alone had a really pushed the team to into this rebuild as soon as the new ownership took over because so the very little depth that they had in the minor leagues was gone, was gone in these like really over aggressive moves. And it left the team no choice that they had to really tear it all down in order to uh, replenish the farm system.
So that's, and I'm going to stop here with the negative stuff. I have a much longer list of things that didn't go very well under Mike Hill's tenure, but yeah, it's some of these trades that have absolutely set them back. Trades of guys that had so much team control remaining too. These unforced errors that uh, if you're a team that has pretty limited payroll constraints and you have a limited window in order to uh, take advantage of these competitive cycles, you can't misfire on these trades. And they really did. They really did, especially in 2016 and 2017. It's weird. I kind of I, I pointed it out at the beginning of the pod the way that I have viewed Michael Hill since Jeter took over is so different because the moves he's made haven't, haven't panned out as poorly. The Christian Yelich move is the only move that I look back on and say, wow, that you really messed that up. There's been so many other moves that have worked. Like we kind of touched on it. You know, the Giancarlo Stanton trade, I wouldn't call it a good trade, but it was a trade that had to happen. Uh, the, the, the Marcelo Zuna trade, the JT Romuto trade, even the D Gordon trade. Um, is that the one where uh, the Marlins got Pablo Lopez? That was the one they got Nick Nider and Robert Duggar and another minor league shortstop, Christopher Torres. So um, that one, you know, jury's still out on that, but Nick Nider is the one that they're kind of pinning their hopes on for that one to yield something. Uh, uh, but you know, the other relatively low scale under the radar trade that was right at the beginning of the tenure that did work out pretty well was the other one with the Yankees where they got Caleb Smith and Garrett Cooper for uh, Michael King and some international bonus money guys that were just dwindling on the edges of the Yankees roster. The Yankees, um, the Yankees were the Yankees and they really, they didn't have any room in their lineup. They felt good about their rotation depth at the time. And the Marlins picked up guys that were pretty immediately big parts of their major league team. I mean, especially Cooper. I mean, Caleb was, you know, now since been traded in that Starling Marte deal in order to add, like buff up that other area of need. But Cooper heading into 2021 is like one of their most valuable position players. Like there's no doubt about it. He's coming off this great year that he has things that somehow he was able to like fall all out of favor in New York, but he's someone that has, really impressive power and if not for fluke injuries like he'd already be established as one of the key pieces of the organization moving forward yeah and i, I said that a couple of years ago it's weird it, it he's not injury prone he said the same thing in spring training he said you know i know people think that i'm injury prone but i'm not and it's true because they're not soft tissue injuries or ligaments it's getting hit on the hand getting hit on the hand again uh making a diving play and re-injuring that same hand. It's, it's getting a, a COVID back in July. It's all freak injuries. And when he's healthy, he is one of the best hitters in this lineup. And the type of hitter that the Marlins have been missing since Stanton, you know, I'm not saying he's as good as Stanton, but his power is something that the Marlins lack. And he's yeah, able power, to. And power to all fields. And, of course, we saw now – at the end of the regular season and the postseason, he had some of the most important home runs, not just the longest ones. He did hit some of the longest ones, but some of the most important ones too, to help clinch their postseason spot. And then of course, help clinch that, that series against the Cubs in the wildcard rounds. Uh, but we're, as we, we're going to spin this forward before we get out of here that, uh, I mean, the situation is still developing. Actually, as we're recording this, we just got news that um, Don Mattingly is going to be addressing the media on Tuesday, tomorrow morning so we'll be listening in on that to uh 
get his thoughts on the end of the Michael Hill era and where the things stand moving forward. Uh, but clearly the organization is still in a pretty early phase when it comes to figuring out next steps. I think there's been naturally some expectation that already executives within the front office are going to be elevated into more significant roles. In fact, they already, Jeter already formally announced that um, Dan Greenlee, who's the head of really all their analytics operations, he's been promoted to assistant general manager. There's maybe the possibility that Gary Denbo gets moved up from VP to GM, if he's interested in that, we'll see. Um, but if they do choose to add from outside the organization, uh, the early speculation, it's really all it is is speculation at this point from guys like Craig Mish, um, just throwing names out there that have pretty strong former Yankee connections. And therefore, as a result, Derek Jeter connections, such as Billy Epler, who was the GM of the Angels the last five years. Uh, that was a highly desirable job when he got it. And he, uh, things did not work out. You know, it kind of mirrored the situation that the Marlins were in um, under before the rebuild and that they just could not figure out how to assemble a competent pitching staff and build around Mike Trout. They never had a winning season with Epler as GM. And he was understandably let go after that. He's a, he's a little bit younger than Michael Hill is. He has a, a lot of years ahead of him working in the game. But of course, that's, this is not the most encouraging. Um, he doesn't have any momentum necessarily going into this job search after a very disappointing tenure with the Angels. Tim Naring was another name that has been suggested. He had a very substantial playing career in the majors during the 1990s. Uh, and, and after that, he moved into the Yankees front office in the mid 2000s. In fact, when Billy Epler left for the Angels job five years ago, Tim Naring took Epler's job as um, as a high ranking scouting official within the, the Yankees organization. So uh, that's where he's been for the last handful of years. And a third name that I think Mish just mentioned earlier today on Monday was Jim Hendry, who was the Cubs GM for about a full decade from what, 2002 to about 2011. The Cubs made the playoffs a few times since then. And of course, there was that year where they ran into the Marlins, if not for the Marlins, if not for Steve Bartman. And what else happens that maybe the Cubs make the World Series at the very beginning of Hendry's tenure. And uh, they would make it back a few years after that as well. He was a guy that ultimately, he got booted in 20, after the 2011 season when the team had uh, they missed their competitive window. They hadn't fully taken advantage of it. And uh, Theo Epstein came in and brought in his own people. So Hendry has been out of that job for about nine years now. And since then, he has been with the Yankees organization as a special assistant. So all three of these guys have a lot of experience in the Yankees front office. They were there when Jeter was still a player. They were there when Gary Denbo was still uh, prominently involved in the player development for the Yankees. And so it's with those connections that... Um, the speculation has been that they might be guys who receive interviews for this opening with the Marlins organization. Uh, I guess I'm just wondering if there's anything you're personally looking for in a candidate to, to fill this position. Um, I, I think, frankly, at least from my perspective, there isn't a one sexy candidate in this situation. Sometimes there are um, guys that have actually led World Series teams or uh, been successful GMs more recently. There's not an obvious guy here to me but uh, I mean what do you think they should be prioritizing in this job search what what would be a hire that you think gets fans to buy into what's going on here and feel like this franchise is still heading in the right direction 
Well, I know it sounds simple, but it's something that we were missing during the, the Samson and Laurie era, which is the ability to keep things balanced between the farm system and the major league roster. I remember David Sampson was uh, on an interview with the Dan Levitard show uh, like a year ago. And he made a comment that I, it, it still stays in my head all these months later where he said, and this is David Sampson, former major league baseball executive says, who cares about a farm system? So it just quote, that's a, that is an actual quote that he said. And it's crazy how that's how the Marlins used to operate. I just want someone who can build a farm system the same way that Jeter and Denbo and Hill were able to do these last three years, while also being able to make a deal at the deadline when they need to, to, to get major league help. We've seen them replenish this farm system, but other than Starling Marte and a couple of other guys uh, on the peripheral, like, you know, Corey Dickerson a little bit and Brandon Kinsler as a closer, we haven't seen them make a ton of, of, of sexy moves in free agency or through trades the biggest free agent deal that they've handed out so far has been uh, Corey Dickerson uh, last off season, one that I, th- I think a lot of people were on board with, but I mean, it's off to a really bad start that first year. Now it's backloaded and you don't know exactly what his future is going to be. And uh, I mean, no doubt about it. This is going to be a very uncertain off season around baseball uh, with no fans in attendance during the regular season. Revenues are down and uh, you don't know exactly how that's going to affect the behavior, the way th- these teams try to balance their competitiveness with uh, the, the balance sheet that their owners have uh, in one that a lot of them are crying poor, even though there are other factors that suggest that the financial health is, is still in great shape around the league. So it's unclear exactly. Uh, it's a new challenge for whoever heads into the situation, even if it's someone that was already in the front office. It's yeah, it's a really weird year to be taking over. So we're going to have coverage of it every step of the way throughout this search. I mean, the Marlins have a lot of time. Uh, the full offseason doesn't start until after the World Series is completed. And we're recording this right on the heels of the World Series starting. So they've still got some time to figure out who to bring in. And uh, until we get to the real meat of the offseason, there's no pressure to formally announce anything. Uh, we'll have coverage of that Don Mattingly presser coming up on Tuesday and see if he has anything interesting to say. And then we'll yeah, as more substantial reports come in about this opening, we'll figure it out. People can find you on Twitter at AlexKrutchikFS. They can find uh, me sitting behind the Fish Stripes accounts, but also at Real Eli with E-L-Y, ending with a Y at the end. And uh, we'll have you covered throughout this entire crazy offseason. And that's about to get started in the way that things are going to go. Wishing all the best to Michael Hill, though. I mean, We've had some limited opportunities to address him in pressers. Um, he's and speaking with people that have worked under him in the organization, I think it's it's pretty unanimous that he treated people well, that uh, and that he knew baseball pretty well, even if he's not exactly the fit that they wanted in this organization moving forward. He was he was no doubt a big asset to this organization and one that he has a lot of years left in this game. I think he's only forty nine years old, even though he spent half his life working for the Marlins. He's there's a, there's going to be some openings for him around the league. So the Marlins are going to have to go through him eventually to contend. He's I'm sure going to be involved in another front office moving forward, whether it's in 2021 or maybe he takes a little bit of time off, but he's uh yeah, he had a big impact on this organization. Seven years as the head of baseball ops, 19 years total. Uh, he came in at the very start of that Loria David Sampson era and uh he survived when most of the other guys didn't. 
during that transition. So wishing Mike Hill all the best and uh, looking forward to an exciting Marlins offseason. So for Alex Krutchik, for Eli Sussman, thank you for listening to the pod. Be sure to rate and review and and tune in. We're going to be doing a lot more pods moving forward throughout this offseason. Go Fish! <laughs>